0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards.
1: Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from London, I'm Max Foster in for Julia Chatterley. Welcome to First Move. Russia firing a wave of missiles at cities across Ukraine, including the capital Kyiv and the major cities of Lviv and Dnipro. Today's attacks targeted critical infrastructure, including power plants. Officials say at least 11 people have been killed. Dozens others have been injured. President Zelensky saying Russia is trying to annihilate the Ukrainian people.
2: They're trying to spread chaos and panic. They want to annihilate our energy supplies. They're hopeless. Their second target is our people. They specifically selected this time in order to hit us the hardest. But we are Ukrainians. We help each other. We believe in ourselves.
1: Well, at the weekend, a massive explosion severely damaged a key bridge linking Russia to annexed Crimea on Saturday. Vladimir Putin blamed the attack on, quote, Ukrainian terrorism.
0: We have no doubt that this is a terrorist attack aimed at the destruction of the critical infrastructure of the Russian Federation. And authors, executors and masterminds are the secret service of Ukraine.
1: Ukraine hasn't commented on that. We'll get the take of Eurasia Group President Ian Bremmer in just a a few moments. But first, we go to Nick Payton-Walsh. He's live for us in southern Ukraine. What did you see there, then, Nick?
2: Yeah, Max, I'm at the site of where one, two missiles hit uh, earlier on today. Let me just bring you a little bit closer. Our cameraman, Bruce Leonier, will show you the depth of the crater in here. This is just one of the missiles that struck and right next to it was a bus, a civilian bus. Miraculously, officials say nobody was hurt on that bus, but also over here is the target. Now, we're told this is a telecoms building, or was one. It's unclear if it's still actually being used for that purpose. I was told by one of the women living in the apartment block just next to it. with uh, pan over so you can see. The absolute disregard for civilian life here. If this was chosen as a target then it was right next to a series of apartment blocks. The lady we spoke to was on the her balcony but the glass came in after the first explosion. She ran back in with her eight-year-old and one-year-old to try and hide themselves in the kitchen. But the blasts were two minutes apart so the first hit this building and the second appears to have slammed into here. Now the cleanup has been happening quite fast. The bus where miraculously nobody was hurt has been taken away. But it's utterly shocking to see just how there's absolutely nothing like a military objective near here at all. Yet still two enormous cruise missiles appear to have slammed into here. And it's not like Vladimir Putin necessarily has thousands of these to spare. So one of the questions I think many people are asking after today's volley of attacks, where pretty much it felt for a while like every city in Ukraine was being hit, is quite how long Russia would keep this up for and quite why they chose to make such a ferocious show of their firepower. Now, clearly, uh, the Kremlin felt under pressure after a number of days where people were wondering what their response to the attack on the Kerch Bridge would be, what they might do to try and reverse the utter disaster of their troops on the front line over the past weeks or even months now, and today's volley of attacks against critical infrastructure, killing four in the Dnipropetrovsk region where I'm standing, injuring over a dozen, a total of 11 dead it seems so far across the country, Well, it appears to have targeted infrastructure, but Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky correctly pointing out too, the other target was ordinary Ukrainian people. And there's a lot of anger here, frankly, in people who've come to take pictures, right next to this extraordinary crater, pointing out again that they're just innocent people, there's no military objective here at all. One man said to me, this is the genocide of the Ukrainian people and Putin must be stopped. People in tears, frankly, because they don't have a home anymore because some of the damage done to these blocks has been extraordinary but i think this is met with two sets of emotions anger and resilience and i think many ukrainians we spoke to here feel they will carry on regardless this isn't going to change anything but i think there's also too a slight apprehension that if that level of firepower is being used just against, well, here, an ordinary street in Dnipri, if this indeed was a target and not a malfunctioning um, missile. That might mark a new phase of the callousness and ferocity of Russia's war here, invasion of Ukraine. But still, I think a a sense of shock, too, that the kind of firepower that would do this is being used on... uh, yeah, clearly a civilian target. Max?
1: A lot of the narrative recently has been how um, Ukraine has been pushing the Russians back. Is this a big sign that actually, you know, Russia still does have a lot of power and not to underestimate that?
2: Um, to some degree, although the, the accuracy and the precision of this would suggest that they're sort of a little bit blundering with those tools and I think their issue on the front lines has been they haven't been able to reflect the sort of high-tech grandeur they like to boast about with their cruise missiles and there was a degree of boasting I think by Vladimir Putin when he spoke about how they'd managed to hit all of their targets here and they respond to threats with force in kind when he uh, made an appearance on television just hours ago but it's not like it actually appears to know what it's hitting i don't really understand why if you had according to ukrainian officials 80 plus missiles in the air why you would choose to hit this building which appears to be a disused telecoms building it suggests the possibility of bad intelligence perhaps the same bad intelligence that made russian officials think they could just walk into ukraine and invade it and take it in a matter of days but it's it's a Interesting point you raised, Max, because many continually talk about the ferocity and the the potency of Russia's armed forces. But we have seen them over the past weeks unable to get food and fuel to their troops on the front lines. Uh, And so displays like this, while limited in their capacity, this is not something Russia can do every day for the rest of the year, uh, show that there is some might left in their arsenal. It comes with a dollop of incompetence, just to quite why you were hit here, uh, and also the backdrop of persistent failure in some of the more ordinary military tasks that they're failing to do, like holding onto villages, towns, and supplying their own troops, Max.
1: OK, uh, Nick in southern Ukraine, thank you very much indeed. Uh, people have been trapped under the rubble of buildings that were hit, though, in the Kiev region. Monday's missile strikes also disrupted power and water supplies. Fred Plytkin is in Kiev for us. And We saw that playground was hit. It's been very calm, hasn't it, in recent months. So this really did come out of the Mm -hmm. blue.
3: Yeah, Max, I'm not sure it came out of the blue because obviously there were a lot of people here in Ukraine who um, believed that there could be retaliation after the Kerch Bridge was hit over the weekend. But it certainly comes after, uh, you know, months of relative calm here in the Ukrainian capital. And that certainly did make it somewhat of a surprise as how ferocious uh, these attacks that happened this morning were. And I can tell you around 8.15 a.m. local time, we really had a rude awakening here in the Ukrainian capital when um, several hits happened uh, in the city center or near the city center of uh, of kiev and you know we went out there to to some of the scenes there and i can tell you some of them were scenes of absolute carnage where you had um, in one place at an intersection several vehicles that were completely destroyed several dead bodies uh, still laying around there as well and obviously rescued crews trying to come to terms with the situation now the city administration here moved extremely quickly to to do just that they got their uh, forces out in full force very quickly the kiev mayor urge people to stay inside, continues to urge people not to come to the city center, despite the fact that the air raid alarm right now is not in full effect anymore. But, you know, about half an hour ago or an hour ago, there were air raid sirens, going off once again here in the Ukrainian capital. So clearly, the Ukrainians don't believe that the danger has necessarily uh, passed. So it was really a, a, a morning with uh, with a lot of rocket strikes happening. Also, the Ukrainians trying to shoot missiles down. I just want to give you one number that I think really, or a couple of numbers that really stand out to us. The Ukrainians just now, uh, the general staff saying that 84 cruise missiles were launched at Ukrainian territory by the Russian federations um, and also 24 unmanned areas vehicles UAVs drones essentially including 13 as they call them Iranian Shahed 136 drones those are those loitering munitions or kamikaze drones which is essentially just uh, munitions that are then steered into their targets so clearly the Ukrainian air defenses have been very busy they managed to shoot a lot of those down but obviously not all of them and the situation that you have right now here in Kiev is that the metro system is back up and running. There are still some people who are sheltering there. But you don't have power in, uh, in all places in Kiev right now. So there was definitely some critical infrastructure that was hit. And You know, we saw from from Nick's report there right now, it's the same scene in a lot of other cities across Ukraine. You take Kharkiv, you take Dnipro, where Nick is, you take Lviv, obviously, as well, where all of them are reporting that they have taken hits by missiles from the Russians, uh, also by drones as well. So clearly a full-on attack in the entire country. And I was able to speak to the deputy head of of Ukraine's presidential administration, and they're obviously saying, yes, it's a dangerous situation right now, but they certainly aren't going to allow their defence uh, of their country that they have obviously going in full force, which has been quite successful recently, to be derailed by that
1: at all, Max. OK, uh, Fred in Kiev. Thank you. Russian President Vladimir Putin has warned that his country will, quote, respond harshly to any further attacks by Ukraine. It comes after a massive explosion on a bridge... Off annexed uh, Crimea on Saturday, Kiev has not claimed responsibility for the attack. But Salma, they haven't denied it either. And today was clearly a revenge from Moscow and President Putin.
4: Absolutely. And we heard from President Putin directly just a couple of hours ago when he addressed his own security council. He opened up that meeting with a statement in which he, of course, blamed Ukraine's security services, accused them of a terrorist act and then told his inner circle essentially, I have responded. The Kremlin has fired this barrage of missiles, this barrage of rocket attacks that we're seeing. President Putin saying that the targets there were energy infrastructure, communication infrastructure, military infrastructure, essentially trying to degrade Ukraine's capabilities. But there's a few things that we need to point out here, Max. First of all, this attack on the Kerch Bridge, make no mistake about it, this is a personal affront to President Putin himself. I heard one analyst describe the bridge as the wedding band that marries occupied Crimea to mainland Russia. To strike at the heart of that is to strike at the heart of President Putin's vision, of his own ambition, and he's going to want to respond to that. He has responded to that if you're looking at this, uh, these missile attacks this morning. And the other thing you need to remember here is that this has exposed some very serious serious security flaws here for Russia. This is a Russian bridge. Security should have been airtight. Access should have been controlled. Yet the saboteurs or whoever is responsible for this attack, again, Ukraine not claiming it, were able to hit this very critical piece of infrastructure. This is the bridge, the one and only pipeline that is used to ferry supplies, not just to Crimea, but to the front lines as well, to provide weapons, to provide troops, to provide operational support. So, yes, Russia is trying to bring that bridge back up and running again, but that's going to deal a logistical blow to what has already been so many battlefield setbacks. And President Putin's going to want to show it can't happen again. I have control of my own infrastructure. I have control of key sites. So it's going to be a combination of President Putin responding in kind to Ukraine with this barrage of missile attacks. The question being, how far does he take this? Is What we saw this morning is families huddled in bomb shelters in Ukraine this morning. Is that enough or will there be a further response? And then you can expect the other part of that is Russia wanting to tighten the security noose around some of its key sites. Max?
1: Okay, Salma, thank you. We're going to get more now uh, from Ukraine. Andrei Zagorodnyuk, the former Ukrainian defence minister, uh, joins us. What did you make of what you saw today and the level of the response you received from Russia?
5: Well, clearly Russia is losing initiative in the, on the battlefield. Um, it's been supported by lots of evidence by counteroffensive um, of Ukrainian forces. And uh, obviously uh, they take it very nervously and uh, they understand that for internal audience in Russia they need to show like they have an, some sort of upper hand that they still maintain the initiative. And uh, we expected the, um, some kind of escalation, obviously, and we, uh, we expected lots of hits on our energy infrastructure. Um, this particular date was ch- has been chosen most likely as a retaliation for the, for the bridge uh, accident. But, uh, but generally, this whole campaign of bombing of the critical infrastructure has been prepared for some time. And it, it has been planned, and there have been indicators that the Russians are preparing for this for, for, for a while.
1: um so so it's a it's
5: a it's a planned campaign
1: so you you call the call it a bridge accident i know you haven't claimed responsibility for what what happened on the bridge into uh, crimea but you're not denying being involved either um was it worth it
5: it's a it's a, it's of course it's a massive military uh, military importance uh, object uh, which has been communicated uh, by ukraine for a long time because crimea is used as a staging area for the troops going into the south uh and we're talking about tens of thousands of troops and uh, uh, they all supplied through this bridge so this bridge is a, is a bottleneck for the for the whole logistical uh, uh, system for russian troops uh, but this is not the only one object of infrastructure which has been hit over the last period of time. So we cannot connect everything which happened today just to the bridge. Uh, it's been there's been a uh, counteroffensive. There's been hits on the other logistical objects in Crimea. Uh, there's been other other successes and failures of uh, uh, successes of Ukraine and failures of Russia. So uh, they've been preparing this campaign as a as a response just to the fact that Ukraine took initiative. So. So it's, it's not like just for the bridge. Uh,
1: how concerned are you that Russia will use tactical nuclear weapons? They're saying they have no plans for that. Um, but from your side of things and the Kiev side of things, there is a suggestion that that is an ongoing threat. Do you think that's a there's a greater threat of that now because of the heightened tensions?
5: Uh, Kiev... Um uh Kyiv government and you know presidential government and uh, and minister of defense and military they all are were reconsidering the threats uh, on a constant basis and of course uh all Ukrainians uh, experts consider this as a, a substantial risk because Putin has cornered himself uh with the annexations um for him it would be impossible now to uh to retreat from those areas and pretend that this was a, like an original plan or, or nothing terrible happened he claimed uh, four regions of ukraine as russia obviously without any uh, compliance to the international law so to speak but but uh, so for, for him uh, as a as a someone who cornered himself Obviously, it would be very difficult to, um, you know, to to, to bear the responsibility for the failures, which are absolutely... Um, going to happen, you know, because they don't have capacity, they don't have enough capabilities to uh, hold Ukrainian counteroffensive, and uh, we are getting stronger and they are getting weaker because they run out of the weapons, they run out of the people. Uh, mobilization is not going to help too much because obviously these are untrained personnel and so on. So uh, as such, yes, uh, tactical nuclear threats are very real, and uh, um, and yes, yeah, the threat is threat is uh, something we have to take into. Account account. However, we obviously need to do that as a global community for everything that they don't don't use it because um, because we cannot afford like the world to open another page of nuclear, you know, nuclear conflicts. This is this is uh, uh, absolutely critical that we deter that. And there are ways to deter that. So, um, you know, the glo- global community need to be very resolved about uh, communicating to Putin that there is absolutely no way he can even think about uh, actual real use of the uh, of the nuclear weapons.
1: OK, Andrey Zagorodnyuk, thank you very much indeed for joining us, the former thank Ukrainian defense minister. Now, straight ahead, North Korea warns it's firing a new type of tactical warhead. We are live uh, in Asia for you next. North Korea says its uh, recent spate of missile launches was orchestrated to demonstrate readiness to fire tactical nuclear warheads, potentially at targets in South Korea. This statement comes just as Japan and South Korea say Pyongyang fired off a pair of ballistic missiles on Sunday. Will Ripley joins us now from Taipei with the latest. He's worked in North Korea several times, as you know. How do you read all of these latest signs coming out from North Korea, Will?
6: Well, I have to admit, Max, I think I misread the last six months of state media silence because normally 24 hours after a launch, they would publicize it. They would show it in the paper. They would run clip on, uh, clips on television. And so when they didn't do that for the first time since I've been covering North Korea, uh, you know, around eight years or so, and all of a sudden they're not publicizing these launches. I, I was even speculating on the air incorrectly. Uh, you know, maybe this is just for science and not for propaganda. Until I realized that today is the 77th anniversary of the um, founding of the ruling Workers Party of Korea. And on this big anniversary, all the launches kind of were released to the public in this one, you know, magnificent multi-page, full-color spread, uh, you know, special edition of the paper. Kim Jong-un and all of these different, you know, custom-made outfits in different scenarios. It was all of this. (laughs) These launches may have been, in addition to Science Max. Propaganda building up to this party anniversary. I mean, that's how things work in authoritarian uh, regimes uh, such as North Korea, where the whole you know, state media propaganda machine is built up around one family. Every single picture that you see there is designed to make Kim Jong-un look strong, to make him you know, stand out, uh, to make him look in control of a growing uh, arsenal, a growing uh, arsenal that's considered to be much more dangerous as well, Max. And, and frankly, that's what the rest of the world is concerned about, not why uh, they, they you know, publicized all of these at once. But what does this mean for the security of the you know, 36,000 U.S. service members uh, in South Korea at Camp, Camp Humphrey, which is the biggest U.S. military installation outside of uh, the mainland U.S., when you have North Korea saying that they're essentially practicing to use tactical nuclear weapons on South Korea? Uh, tactical nuclear weapons, the kind that, you know, President Putin's dangling in Ukraine as well. So uh, to think that we, you know, we talked so hypothetically about nuclear conflict for so many years, and now there are actually flashpoints in, you know, in this world where it could actually happen, uh, where people are really starting to get nervous about it. That is a it is a it is a very interesting time that we're in. And certainly we can hope that things will deescalate once Kim Jong Un decides, Max, that he's willing to talk again, because right now, clearly he's not he's ready to keep testing. And of course, everybody's waiting For the seventh nuclear test at
1: some point. Yes, warring times. Will, thank you very much indeed. People in Taiwan are celebrating their national day 111 years after that revolution that ended China's last imperial uh, dynasty. The capital Taipei marked the day with music and festivities and a speech from the president calling on mainland China again to respect the island's sovereignty.
4: The broadest consensus among the Taiwanese people and our various political parties is that we must defend our national sovereignty and our free and democratic way of life. On this point, we have no room for compromise.
1: China's foreign ministry already pushing back on that, reiterating that it sees Taiwan as, quote, an inseparable part of its territory. Joining me now is CNN's Selena Wang. This is all language we're hearing all the time. It just doesn't change. But it feels like we're hearing it more often in these sort of big events.
7: Certainly more frequently and more often. And the key thing to remember every time we hear these types of comments from Beijing underpinning it all is that even though the Chinese Communist Party has never ruled Taiwan, a democratically ruled island of some 23 million people, Beijing sees Taiwan as a breakaway province that must be reunified with the mainland even by force if necessary. Taiwan strongly objects to that claim. And on the National Day, we heard Taiwan's president say there will be no compromise on Taiwan's people's values to freedom and democracy. But the issue of Taiwan, it is central, Max, to the very core ideology of the Communist Party. It is a part of the DNA of the CCP that Taiwan is part of the mainland. Now, also, following that visit from U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi over the summer, we have seen Beijing continue to ramp up its military pressure tactics on Taiwan. And in fact, on Monday, on the National Day, we heard from Taiwan's defense ministry that 26 Chinese military aircraft and four naval vessels have been detected in the surrounding area. The timing here is also key. We are just days away from China's all-important party Congress. This is convening, starting to convene. On October 16th, this is when Xi Jinping is expected to be re-anointed for an unprecedented third term as the supreme leader of the Chinese Communist Party. And this is a very sensitive time. And the big question as well is if we're going to hear any more details from Xi Jinping during this party congress as to what and when reunification might look like, Max.
1: I wanted to ask you as well about a rather interesting interview with Elon Musk in the Financial Times here in London, saying um, that Taiwan should become a special administrative zone of China, wading into global affairs yet again. He doesn't necessarily have a big voice there, but they are responding. So it's become a story.
7: Yes, we are seeing clashes between China and Taiwan over these unsolicited suggestions from billionaire Elon Musk. He's never been one to shy away from controversy. This is what he said in an interview published Friday in the Financial Times. Quote, my recommendation would be to figure out a special administrative zone for Taiwan that is reasonably palatable, probably won't make everyone happy. And it's possible, and I think probably, in fact, that they could have an arrangement that's more lenient than Hong Kong. Now, Beijing has offered Taiwan that one country, two systems formula, has offered Taiwan that formula that's been provided to Hong Kong, one country, two systems. However, remember, since that sweeping national security law was implemented in 2020, civil liberties, dreams of democracy, they have been quashed in Hong Kong. And Taiwan's mainstream political parties, they have all rejected that notion. Now, in response to Elon Musk's comments, we heard China's ambassador to the U.S., on Twitter, thank Elon Musk for that suggestion. We also heard from Taiwan's representative to the U.S. who said the following that, quote, Taiwan sells many products, but our freedom and democracy are not for sale. Now, the backdrop here as well for Tesla in China, Max, is that Tesla's monthly sales in China have just hit a new record high. Now, it hasn't been all smooth sailing for Tesla in China. They are now dealing with many many, many competitors domestically in China, other electric vehicle makers. They also have been dealing with supply chain snags. But notable that as he is making these comments, his business is doing well. Max.
1: OK, thank you to Silin Wang in Beijing. Coming up on First Move, intense Russian missile attacks across Ukraine after a massive explosion on a key bridge to Crimea. I'll speak to Eurasia Group President Ian Bremer next. Welcome back to First Move. Russia launching deadly missile attacks across Ukraine, including the capital, Kiev, and the cities of Lviv and Dnipro. Today's attacks targeted major infrastructure facilities, including power plants. Officials say at least 11 people have been killed and dozens injured. President Volodymyr Zelensky is expected to address an emergency G7 meeting tomorrow. This comes after an explosion severely damaged a key bridge linking Russia to annexed Crimea over the weekend. Vladimir Putin blames Ukraine for what he called a terrorist attack. Joining us now, Ian Bremmer, president of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. He's also the author of the book, The Power of Crisis How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. Thank you for joining us. Um, What did you make of the level of the response that Ukraine received from Russia today?
8: Uh, Well, first of all, um, these are direct and intentional targeting of civilian centers. I mean, these are the largest cities across Ukraine. We've not seen anything like this uh, terrorism uh, being supported directly by a state really since Assad uh, was uh, attacking um, his own civilian centers in Syria or perhaps when uh, the Russians were invading uh, Chechnya. Um, but uh, there's no question this is state-sponsored terrorism, uh, but it also shows uh, how limited Putin's abilities are militarily to do anything about the conventional military losses that he is presently facing on the battlefield uh, at the hands of Ukraine with very, very strong support of NATO. Uh, so it's it's both the atrocities are, are of course, uh, staggering. Uh, but also just as much the limitations on what Putin cannot accomplish.
1: So a civilian target, the bridge into Crimea, and he described that as terrorism as well. So that's the message Russians are receiving about this. It's tit for tat almost.
8: Yeah, well, yes, I mean, certainly that's what Putin's trying to do. Of course, um, when, when you're talking about the a bridge from uh, Crimea, Uh, You're also talking about a bridge that was being used to bring uh, a large amount of military resources uh, from Russia into the Ukrainian front. Um, So it would be seen as a legitimate military target, even though it appears to be a suicide uh, bomb um, on a truck uh, that blew it up. So the tactics are unusual for a state government, but the targeting is much less so. Having said that, you're absolutely right that. What Russia has been doing over the past two weeks are the greatest level of escalation in this war, especially from the perspective of their own population, of anything we've seen since the initial invasion in February 24th. And what I mean here is the annexations of these territories as Russian, the mobilization of some 300,000 Russian young men and not so young men to be thrown to the front. um, And now, of course, um, the painting of the attack on the bridge as a terrorist act, and therefore, uh, the decision to justifiably, uh, strike civilians across the country. Um, this is Putin has himself painted it really into quite a corner where there's no, there's no way that he's going to be able to emerge from this crisis in anything but a very, very damaged position economically. Um, geopolitically, and of course, his own political position at home. And that makes this war more dangerous in terms of what Putin will next
1: do. Well, that's, of course, the fear, isn't it? If he's in a corner and he feels he can't lose, uh, he may use that ultimate weapon, which are these um at first level, tactical nuclear weapons that people keep talking about. But that didn't happen today. Uh, The Ukrainians keep warning it may happen. The Russians are saying it won't happen. I mean, what is the realistic threat that he may use them?
8: Uh, That's not the next step if they decide to continue to escalate. It is very clear that the use of a nuclear weapon in any form in ukraine uh, would lead the americans to get directly involved in the war and that would be the end of russia's warfighting capability on the ground in ukraine uh, so but short of that there are still plenty of escalation decisions that putin can take he can engage in asymmetric attacks against nato i'm thinking cyber attacks fiber attacks to shut down fiber in Europe, pipeline attacks, railway, other critical infrastructure. Remember, if you're watching this war through Russian state media, you're not fighting Ukraine, you're fighting NATO. It's because of NATO that the Russians are losing all of these battles in Ukraine. So the next step really, if we're looking at escalation from Putin that would lead to a a dangerous expansion of the war, it's not that they suddenly pop off a nuke, it's much more that suddenly countries like Poland are actually involved. And how do they respond to asymmetric attacks? That's a much more difficult question for NATO than what happens if the Russians, God forbid, were to launch a tactical nuclear weapon.
1: Do we reach a point where he loses internal support with all these stories coming back from the, you know, the war zones and you know, obviously the stories of uh, uh, people who are going to be conscripted leaving the country Uh, When does the narrative internally go against Putin and that in in itself becomes a threat to him?
8: Well, as you know, uh, over 300,000 Russians have left the country and the Russians didn't stop them and they could have closed the borders if they wanted to. Why not? Uh, One reason is because those people that are leaving the country are people that otherwise would be against the Putin regime. And I suspect that Putin is happy to have them go, frankly. So, I mean, the reality is that he does have complete control over uh, the narrative inside Russia uh, having said that the economy is uh, contracting uh, was one of the fastest growing economies in the world it's now going to be contracting by 5% this year it'll be a lot worse next year that's starting to hurt starting to bite the average russian you start sending a lot of uh, men into the battlefield and of course that's going to create a lot of angry russians as well though particularly in the ethnic minorities who are suffering the most, they're the ones that are losing the most. So I think if you were to see big demonstrations in Russia that would be violent and hard to stop, you'd see them in places where the Russians aren't. So here I'm talking Siberia, like in Sakha, the middle Volga, um, and also the North Caucasus, far from Moscow. Uh, As to threats against Putin himself in Moscow, uh, there were about 2,300 Russians arrested on the back of this conscription, the call-up mobilization. That's roughly the same numbers we saw at the beginning of the war, and then it calmed down very quickly. That seems to be what's happening right now. So it doesn't look like we're close to Putin suddenly facing real domestic insurrection. And as to whether or not he would face disloyalty from inside his inner circle in the Security Council, well, the answer to that, of course, is absolutely not until after it happens. We're not gonna have any visibility into that sort of issue.
1: Okay, Ian Bremmer, uh, President of Eurasia Group, thank you, as ever, for joining us today. Uh, We're going to go back to the ground, though, southern Ukraine. Nick Payton-Walsh joins us from there. Um, the, The scene of one of the attacks today, Nick.
2: Yeah, Max, I mean, you can be impressed, frankly, by the speed of the cleanup here. I mean, an hours earlier, this was a place where it appears five people were severely injured. This is the depth of the crater. They put a lot of the rubble back in it already, but already around excavators clearing up the rubble, the damaged tram lines being, power lines being taken down as well. Now, what's important to discuss here, Max, is what was the target? It appears the first missile hit this building, a partially disused telecoms building and you can see just from inside of it that it's pretty much abandoned there were possibly some people in it not quite clear what they were doing if they were actually telecoms workers but clearly you would think not a prime target for an exceptionally expensive cruise missile Second one, two minutes later, hits here. Next to that is a civilian bus. Now, on board that, there were people who were hit by the explosion, five in a critical condition in hospital, over a dozen others injured. The key thing to bear in mind, though, is the risk say risk it sounds silly doesn't it when russia's firing cruise missiles into a place like this but the callous disregard for civilian life look at all these apartment blocks right next to whatever the target was russia thought it was hitting windows blown out by the blast a woman i was speaking to on the balcony saying that she was sat out there heard the first missile rushed her eight and one year old children into the kitchen before the second blast came in Two minutes later. And that story is all across this block where people are now going to have to see the approach of winter coming fast today, frankly, with no glass to keep the limited heat in. It's about critical infrastructure, it seems, from what you can try and make out, what Russia thinks it seems to have been hitting. But there is also, too, this civilian cost that we've seen the death toll growing during the day, the number of injured growing during the day. And so I think the key message that Russia's tried to send to Ukrainians today is something about their military might, but it always comes with a side helping of, uh, uh, of ineptitude, frankly. We don't know what they were trying to hit here, and people's lives may have been lost as a result of this. There was a moment during this morning when pretty much every major city in Ukraine was under some sort of attack, it seemed, and there were many Ukrainians calling each other, making sure they were safe, a sense of panic for a brief period of time possibly but that's been replaced by resilience and the fast cleanup here anger though amongst people who've come to this scene to see it for themselves one man talking about how is the genocide against the ukrainian people another woman pointing out what are you talking about this being a military objective there's nothing here to actually target and so fears possibly that we're seeing a new sense of tactics about just nakedly attacking civilian areas by moscow but i should point out we've seen a lot of that since the beginning of the war. Hospitals in Mariupol, uh, bomb shelters in Mariupol, uh, civilian apartment blocks in Zaporizhia over the past week, in neighbouring near city from where I'm standing. So that in itself is not new. The ferocity today is something we've not seen for a number of months, uh, and it calls to question quite what Russia's tactic was, possibly a show of force by Vladimir Putin after the blunt embarrassment of having a bridge he personally opened between the mainland and annexed Crimea, uh, blown up a few days ago uh we did think there would be some sort of retaliation and this appears to have been it if that's the full extent of it we'll see in the days ahead but i'm startled frankly to stand here and see that two of probably russia's relatively limited stock of cruise missiles have been expended to make a hole in a bus route and blow up a disused telecom building startling max
1: in southern ukraine thank you after the break Iranian protests go beyond its borders, demonstrations in France in solidarity with women fighting for human rights in the Islamic country. in iran chanting freedom freedom on sunday demanding justice for the reported deaths of four young women over recent weeks and ultimately freedom from fear and intimidation a human rights group claims at least 185 people have died in the protests so far including 19 children cnn has been unable to verify these numbers In a mark of solidarity, these women in Paris took to the streets at the weekend. The government has urged all French citizens and visitors to leave Iran as soon as possible, warning they risk arrest, arbitrary detentions and unfair trials. Nada Bashir following all of this for us. You've been covering this for uh, days and it's just getting uh, bigger every day, isn't it? These young demonstrators aren't giving up and the authorities can't control them.
9: Yeah, absolutely, Max. And over the last few days, we have, of course, seen that crackdown by the security forces in Iran intensifying across the country. And despite that, we are still continuing to see these brave acts of defiance continuing to see these demonstrations across the country and as you said there many of them comprising of students even young schoolgirls taking part in these demonstrations which were of course sparked around the issue uh, of the regime's severe restrictions on women's rights on the freedom of women to choose how they wish to dress the Iranian regime of course mandating uh, the hijab the headscarf worn by women in Iran and that has been enforced often violently by Iran's notorious morality police. But this has really swelled and grown to encompass more wide-reaching grievances held by the Iranian people. Uh, And we have seen the regime now really attempting to crack down on that. We've seen access to the internet across the country being restricted uh, in pockets. But we've also seen that heavy-handed crackdown by the police, by security officials just over the weekend in the Kurdish cities of Sanandaj and uh, Saqqez. We saw uh, another violent crackdown by the security forces according uh, to Hengaw, one uh, Iranian human rights organization. At least four people were killed after security forces opened fire on demonstrators uh, over the weekend across those two cities. And earlier this morning, in fact, in the early hours, uh, we saw those clashes continuing between uh, protesters and the security forces according to human rights groups and local journalists on the ground The security forces once again opening fire on peaceful protesters. And we've heard from Human Rights Watch. We've heard from Amnesty International detailing the use of excessive and lethal force. But we also heard from Iran's deputy interior minister for security and law enforcement speaking yesterday saying that any protesters or as he termed it rioters attending these demonstrators uh, would be tried quickly, would be arrested and a verdict would be decisive and deterrent. So clearly uh, the regime is attempting to take a hard line response uh, on all fronts here, there has been, of course, a, a stark international reaction. We've seen last week uh, the Biden administration imposing new sanctions. Now today, the British Foreign Office also announcing s- uh, sanctions on both the Iranian uh, morality police as well as five other Iranian officials, uh, they believe, have perpetrated violence or human rights abuses. The European Union, for its part, is still considering potential sanctions on Iranian officials. But as you saw there in that lead, uh, we are seeing protests, stands of solidarity from people up and down the globe as well, across the country, across the globe. Uh, Those demonstrations in France. We've seen acts of solidarity, people taking to social media, cutting their hair in support of the women of Iran. And this really is continuing to be driven by women and girls in the country. We've seen this brave act of defiance by young schoolgirls who, of course, have lived their entire lives under the Iranian uh, Islamic regime, removing their headscarves, which are mandated by the government, uh, and, of course, then taking that defiant stand against uh, the Iranian supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, uh, and, of course, Iran's other uh, leaders, who they believe are perpetrators of human rights abuses and severe restrictions on their own rights. Max?
1: Okay, Nada, thank you. Uh, Do stay with uh, First Move. We'll be back with uh, much more. Welcome back. US stocks opening mix to start the week. Wall Street will see how rising rates have affected corporate America's bottom lines as the third quarter earnings season kicks off this week. Investors will also be keeping a close eye on the latest inflation data with the consumer price index due on Thursday. Rahel Solomon joins us from New York. That key inflation data coming Uh, What do you expect to see in that September CPI?
10: Hi, Max. Good to be with you. Yeah, we expect some slight cooling in consumer inflation, which will certainly be welcome news, although uh, inflation is expected to still hover around 40-year highs. But, Max, this comes in the midst of a sea of economic data this week. It is a massive week for the U.S. economy. I just want to show you some of the other reports we're also going to get this week. For example, on Wednesday, we'll get the producer price index, which is essentially inflation On the producer level, on the wholesale level, expectations for PPI or producer inflation is also expected to cool from 8.7% annually, which is what we got last month, to about 8.3% this week. In terms of consumer inflation, that is also expected to cool from 8.3% over the last year to about 8.1%. But, Max, what's also really important here is not only do we get this really key inflation data, But we'll learn how Americans are responding to inflation. On Friday, for example, you might have noticed we'll get retail sales data. In other words, are Americans still spending? Are consumers still spending, which is critically important? Uh, The U.S. consumer is two-thirds of U.S. GDP. And how do they feel about it? We'll get consumer sentiment. So, Max, at a time when investors and economists and certainly financial journalists are clamoring for any sense of clarity on the economy, this week we'll get a bit of it.
1: And you're also looking at those big banks, aren't you, as well, with their results this week?
10: Right. We're going to hear from some of the world's largest banks this week, right, as this massive week for the U.S. economy continues. So on Friday, for example, we're going to hear from major U.S. banks like J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, Morgan Stanley, and we'll learn, Max, not only how they did the last few months, the prior three months, but how they expect to do in terms of profit, sales, that sort of thing, the next three months and beyond. And you might remember the last time we heard from banks during earnings season, when when asked about the consumer, they actually said the U.S. consumer was in strong shape, that consumers were still spending on things like uh, retail, on things like restaurants. The question now, as inflation has remained, of course, persistent as it has remained stubborn. Are Americans still spending? Are consumers still feeling great? So, so many questions this week. We'll also probably hear a lot about the strong U.S. dollar and how that is impacting multinational corporations. So, lots of data this week. Investors will certainly get their hands on a bit of clarity and they'll have a lot to put their hands around.
1: Well, they'll be keeping you busy. Rahel Solomon, thank you very much indeed for finishing up the show for us today. That's it for First Move. Connect the World is up next with Becky.